right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse number 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and beginning in verse number 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised Hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So tonight's lesson we're going to finish up this 13 principles to live by uh, it's not what you think tonight's principle is that god uses nobodies and aren't you thankful for that let's go to the lord in prayer heavenly father we do pray that your hand lord would be upon the preaching of your word i pray that you would just bless now be with all of the ministries all the classes father god be with uh, this class here in the auditorium Give me the strength, give me the wisdom, and Lord, give me the power of your Holy Spirit, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm so thankful that God uses whosoever will. Whosoever wants to be used of God can be used of God. Whoever wants to be saved, or saved the Bible says, uh, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. God does not look for vaccination cards, nor does he determine who is essential and who is not essential. Uh, God wants to use each and every one of us. Have you ever played a game in which teams had to be picked by captains? I mean, uh, I think most of us, if not all of us, have had that wonderful experience where they will choose two captains and say, okay, you are the captains, and and, uh, and you guys get to pick the teams, and, and then, of course, it's a flip of the coin or something like that to determine which captain gets to pick first. And then they begin to pick the teams. And they pick generally the most athletic, and they pick the biggest, and they pick the strongest. And none of us wants to be that last one who is picked. And we tend to think that God chooses people Uh, to use for his kingdom in the same way that team captains pick their players. We assume he's going to choose those who have natural talent, those who have natural uh, 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 natural, um, uh, just natural talents and um, abilities. We also assume he's going to choose those with great upbringings. As a matter of fact, we tend to choose for God the same way that men would rather than the way that God would. Well, that would be a perfect fit for our church. Oh, that person would fit in just great. Uh, That would be a great individual. Um, You know, when I think back to my Bible college days, I know even Bible colleges are guilty of this. They will choose the best and the brightest. I can remember one time in a chapel, they had 
all of the uh, pastor's kids stand up. And, and then they made the comment that that's the cream of the crop out there, the, the, the pastor's kids. Well, as you know, that sat really well with me because I was never a preacher's kid. But nonetheless, they, even in Bible colleges, I can remember at, uh, at graduation, Matter of fact, sometimes I think back on it at graduation, all the people who got rewards or awards, I guess. Uh, one of them was like the Life Beautiful Award. By the way, how do you determine that? But nonetheless, as I look back on all those who got awards, not a one of them's in the ministry today, which just goes to show that we choose a book for all the wrong reasons. We choose a vessel for all the wrong reasons. Even Samuel was guilty when, in, when he went into the house of Jesse to pick the king, and he saw, uh, he saw Jesse's oldest, and he said, Surely the, uh, the, the king is before us. And God said, No, this is not the one. And God rejected every single one of those sons because God had chosen the one that no one else had chosen. David, God knows what he's talking about, and I'm so thankful that God doesn't use the same criteria that the world uses when it comes to choosing people. We'll choose people with the great upbringing, the tremendous communication skills, or a charismatic personality. Or we think that perhaps he's going to choose those with the most experience, the most ability, and soul winning, or the greatest influence among the largest number of people. I think we're going to be surprised in heaven who God rewards, and who is just in heaven. Now, the result of these assumptions is that we compare ourselves to others and either think that God will use us because we have abilities, or we think God can't use us because we're not so fortunate. God operates differently than we do. He uses those we might think would be the least likely to make a difference for Him, and He delights in using those uh, who recognize they are unable to do anything of eternal significance without God's enabling. I know that oftentimes as a pastor, when I ask someone to take something up or to do something and, and they kind of stumble and they stutter and they say, I don't think I can do that. I know I've chosen the right person. Because when you think you can, you probably can't. You see, souls hang in the balance here. Did he choose the scribes when it came to his disciples? Did he choose the most knowledgeable religious leaders? Did he choose the Sanhedrin or anyone in the Sanhedrin? Did he choose people who had political connections and could help open doors? When he chose his apostles, he chose none of these. Jesus chose primarily fishermen uneducated, unknown, blue-collar workers. As a matter of fact, the priests marveled after Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and then ascended into heaven. And then he sent the, the power of the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And when they were in the temple speaking, the Bible says that they marveled and took note that they had been with Jesus because these were uneducated men, ignorant men. In Luke chapter 5, verse number 10, we read, And so is also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. 
When they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all, and they followed him. Now, this doesn't mean that God is unwilling to use those we might consider to be more talented, more connected. As a matter of fact, Paul was the scholar of the apostles, and God used him mightily. So it's not that God won't use them. It's that many refuse to be used. They'd much rather use their talents where they can get a pat on the back, where men recognize them. Among Jesus' disciples, there was a wide range of men. In Luke chapter 6 and in verse number 13, we read that when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelots, and also Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Jesus didn't choose any of these disciples for what they could give to him. He chose them for how he could work through them because he knew their hearts. God uses the weak in this world. He's able to use people who are feeble, physically or spiritually weak, We see this all throughout the Bible. Gideon, for instance, saw himself as weak and unqualified when God called him to be a judge. But God saw him as who he could become, a mighty man of valor. Judges chapter 6 and in verse number 11, the Bible tells us that there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that pertained unto Joash the the Abiezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. You know, it's interesting how God can see ahead. Gideon was not a mighty man of valor at this point. Matter of fact, he's hiding because he was just the opposite. But God saw what Gideon could be. And Gideon said unto him, in verse number 13, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in, go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And that was the key right there. Gideon said that I come from a very poor family, Uh, a a nobody family. He said, within that family, I'm the least uh, of the family. Also, Moses saw himself as a terrible choice for a spokesman to Pharaoh. But God saw him as someone through whom God could do miracles. We, We often question God. And God calls all of us to uh, be a gospel witness. And we'll question God and we'll say, Lord, are you sure that's what you want me to do? 
But yet through the power of God, we can do whatever God calls us to do. God calls us, calls us all to tithe. We'll often question God. Say, Lord, I, I really don't think I can afford to tithe. And once again, God has to remind us, I will be with thee. Whithersoever there goest, or whatsoever thou givest. In Exodus chapter 4, verse number 10, Moses said unto the Lord, O oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. God uses that which is base, that which is despised in this world. He uses nobodies. And again, thank the Lord that he does. He's able to use people who are humanly insignificant. We truly are the non-essentials, but thank the Lord, God doesn't look at us that way. One look through Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith in the scripture, it reveals how willing God is to use anybody. None of the individuals in the great hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, is particularly special. As a matter of fact, there's one woman named in Hebrews chapter 11, and I find it interesting that God doesn't name Sarah and and God doesn't name uh, Rebecca. God doesn't name Deborah. Instead, God names Rahab. And then he adds the title to her just to, just to get us to understand God can use anybody. Why, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that by faith, verse number 31, the harlot Rahab perished not. That means she was saved. That means unlike all the nobles in uh, the town of Jericho, unlike all the wise in the town of Jericho, all the uppity-ups there on Nob Hill in Jericho, the Bible says of all of them, those that had degrees and those that were doctors, there was only one woman who was saved, the harlot Rahab. Because she trusted in God. By faith, the Bible says, she perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. It just goes to show. I think it's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. It's one that is still taught today. As a matter of fact, you go through Jesus' genealogy and she's only one of the women that's actually named in his genealogy. Jesus came from the lineage of Rahab because God is good, because God is gracious, and because God can use anybody. Oh, preacher, you don't know who I am, and you don't know what I what I thought, and 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 you just don't know me very well. I don't, but God knows you, and God knew Rahab and what she did. And God said, I want to use her if she is willing to be used. Hey, it's the opposite of how we think. 
we'd have gone into Jericho. Maybe if, all, if God could stop time and take us back into the town of Jericho without us knowing what was going to happen and what the situation was, if God were to say to one of us, hey, I'm going to use one of the women in this town to deliver her family. I'm going to use a woman in this town who is going to, uh, who's going to be great and I'm going to preserve her name. She's going to be in the hall of faith. And, and generations are going to look up to this woman. And if God would have said, who do you think it's going to be? And if he'd have given us 20 choices, we probably would have picked all the rest of them first before we picked Rahab the harlot. And yet, that's the one God used. And that's the one that not only this generation, but all the previous generations have preached about. Here is a woman of faith, and this is how you have faith. We tend to think just the opposite. Those who make the greatest impact, those who are called and used of God, are not necessarily those who have talent, wisdom, heritage, or even ability but rather those who have the power of God in their lives. And that can be anyone who opens themselves up to God. The Apostle Paul's testimony, it's helpful to us. Even when he was weak, fearful, and trembling, God's power was evident. Look in your, at your study sheet there or, or in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, since we're right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 1. And if you know anything about the history of Paul going into Corinth, you know this. He was so fearful when he was in the town, God had to reassure him in a vision and tell him to stay and that he was going to do a mighty work there. That's how fearful he was. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul reveals this. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, not confidence, he says, not confidence in me, not confidence in my talents. Even though Paul had gone to many places and started churches, Corinth was a whole different monster. And he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul? This must have been one scary place. But like all of us, there's times in our Christian lives where Satan tends to get the victory and the doubts tend to creep in. But... Paul stayed with it. He persevered. He says in verse number four, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the people God uses are not always the people that others recognize as being effective or significant in the work of God. Any Christian can be used of God even those who feel themselves to be nobodies. In fact, we must all come to the place where we recognize that any element of effectiveness for God in our lives is not due to something special about us, but it is due to the power of God. So what can nobodies do? 
to be used of God. How do I get to a point in my life where God can use me, understanding that I really don't have any specific talents, I don't have great abilities, I certainly do not have the heritage or the nobility. What can I do? What steps can I take in order for God to use me to the point that I can have an impact on other people and on eternity? Well, we only have to look at Paul's testimony in our text and in our verses to learn. And the first thing that he teaches us is this. Number one, be determined. Be determined. When I came to you, he said, I came not with excellency of speech. Verse number two, he says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we see that Paul was determined to preach Christ for salvation. This was his driving passion. Now, not every Christian is called to be a pastor, but all of us are called to make Christ known. All of us are called to be a witness. We're all called to be a testimony. We're all called to live a life where others see Christ in us, and we're called to do more than that. We're called to be witnesses And by the way, a witness has to talk. A witness has to speak. A witness has to speak up for the things of God and be willing to give the gospel. In one sense, to preach Christ means to declare the truth of the gospel to others. God doesn't save people because they are great. We know that. He saves people because they're sinners and they need to be saved. He doesn't need celebrities or philosophers. He simply offers salvation to all. This offer is repugnant to proud people who are convinced that their greatness should give them spiritual favors. To be saved, however, one must humble himself to see his need for Christ. I am a sinner in need, in desperate need of a Savior. And the same is true of the methods that God uses to bring people to salvation. It's not our cleverness. Well, I just don't think that I can debate. You're looking at probably one of the worst debaters in the history of the world. And yet God has used me to lead people to Christ. Say, well, how do you explain that? By the power of of the Holy Spirit. That's how. That's, That's the only way that it can happen. It's not our cleverness. It's not our ability to argue for our position or our beliefs. God uses the simple declaration of the truth, holding up Jesus as the sacrifice for sin to bring people to salvation. In this same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 18, the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. We're, al- we're always looking for that next great gimmick that will lure people in. 
Today, it is being as worldly as you possibly can in your church. It's having a rock band. It's having a concert. It's being fun, if you will. We're always looking for that next gimmick. But our reliance just needs to be on the Word of God. Understand this, if they won't come for the Word of God and won't come to the Word of God... Um, they may come for a concert, but that's all they're coming for. Remember when the rich man wanted Abraham to use a gimmick? Remember when he was in hell? The Bible says in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment. And then when he realized there was no escape, there was no reprieve, he said, well, please, can you send Lazarus? Send Lazarus to my family. Send him to my brother's. For surely they're going to listen if one is raised from the dead or one comes to the dead to witness. And Abraham said, no, gimmicks do not lead people to Christ. Entertainment does not lead people to Christ. Uh, these, these things, being clever and having the, the next clever way, it, it doesn't lead people to Christ. It's the word of God, the power of God. When we realize we're inadequate, then we will fully rely on God's word, and then we're going to see great results because of that. The foolishness of preaching. Oh, my, how even the Christian world today considers preaching foolish. Now we've got to have these 10-minute TED Talks rather than the preaching of the word. Well, you know, people today, they just don't have the... They just don't have the mindset that they used to have. They don't have the attention span that they once had. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit can help us overcome that. The foolishness of preaching, it saves them that believe. The Jews require a sign. That's their gimmick. The Greeks seek after wisdom. That's their gimmick. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Don't you love the preaching of God's word? I mean, don't you get even more of a hunger for it? The more you hear it, the more you want it. Because it is so satisfying. Though many in the world today do not want to hear the gospel and even see it as foolishness, and even in many so-called Christian circles... Jesus Christ is the answer. Boy, if there's anything that we have learned, Jesus is the answer. And I'm so thankful that he's consistent. By the way, did you know that Saturday, I probably shouldn't say this, but Saturday the pandemic is over. I don't know how it's going to happen. But somehow, some way, this Saturday... Now, if you go into Costco today, they'll yell at you and tell you to put on a mask. But somehow, some way, Saturday, miraculously, it's going to be gone. It's going to vanish. Now, I'm so glad that I'm not a pessimist. Otherwise, I might think it had something to do with the elections that are coming up. But I'm not a pessimist. I don't believe that at all. I think somehow, some way, miraculously... It has disappeared, just like it only took two weeks to flatten the curve. And then we could wear one mask, and then two masks, 
and oh my goodness, these masks aren't really doing anything. We need N95 masks. And then, of course, if you get the vaccine, it'll... I noticed they changed the signs in Washington State. Last time I went up to Washington State, the sign said, eradicate the virus, get vaccinated. They don't say that anymore <laughs> because we know it didn't happen, did it? Here's the, the thing about our God. He's consistent. You know what the answer was all along? Jesus Christ. He's the answer. He's the answer to our problems. He's the answer to our fears. He's the answer to our trembling. He's the answer to our nightmares. He's the answer for our salvation. And anyone who communicates the message of the gospel is working together with God and doing the most important thing on earth. It's amazing how the world changes. Do you notice how yesterday's heroes were today's villains? At one point, we were saying, wow, we need to lift up our first responders and our nurses they are our heroes. But then when they came out with the vaccine, that when it was Trump's vaccine, they wanted nothing to do with it. But then when another president came on, it was the greatest thing ever invented. And when nurses and doctors started saying, you know, I'm not so sure that I want to take this, our heroes became our villains. Now, I, listen, regardless of, of where you stand, I'm not knocking anybody. I'm just trying to say this. There's a lot of inconsistency in the world in which we live because nobody really has the answer. I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. We are looking for answers, but there's one answer we do know. Jesus is the answer. The heart of Christ was for mankind. Luke chapter 19 and in verse number 10, Luke chapter 19, verse number 10. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And by the way, once he saves someone, he doesn't say, well, you're going to have to get a booster salvation now. Well, that booster salvation is wore out. Now you need two booster salvations Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when that which is, was lost is saved, it's forever saved. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise God, he's the answer. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 1. We then... As workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. There's a story about Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the son of the president, waiting to board a plane during World War II. While standing in line, the general overheard a private pleading at the ticket window. He said, I'm going overseas in three days. I want to see my mom before I go. I can go home and be back, but only if I travel by plane. Please, can you sell me a ticket? The agent explained to him that every seat on the plane was already taken. And just about that time, Brigadier General Roosevelt stepped forward and said, I'll surrender my seat to him. 
but protested a fellow officer to the general, this is a matter of rank, he's a private. That's right, replied General Roosevelt, he's a son, I'm only a general. Aren't you glad you're a son, a daughter, if you know Christ is your personal savior? God conferred the highest honor upon us when he called us sons. Our standing with God is solely based on our salvation through Christ, not on our greatness in this world, not on our might. In this way, we are nobodies whom Christ has made somebodies, as many as believed in him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. What a saying. He's a son. I'm only a general. Determined to preach Christ for salvation. It ought to be a passion. It ought to be our, our priority. It ought to be our focus. In everything that I say and everything that I do, I want to preach Christ. I want to give glory and honor to God. Determined to preach Christ for salvation. But Paul was also determined to preach Christ for sanctification. You know, many get these messed up. Salvation comes first. That means you become God's. You become a son of God. You become a vessel of God. Uh, You have been redeemed. And the Bible also says that we've been bought with the price. So thank God I am now God's possession. That's salvation. Sanctification says this. Not only do I want to be God's possession, I want to be a possession that God can use. Many of us have possessions we never use. Matter of fact, we'll take a look at something, and, I, and, and, and there's some people that are notorious for this. You go look in their garages, and their garages are full of these things. Well, maybe I'll use it someday, and it goes in the garage. But then there are those possessions that you can't live without. And then when they break down or something happens to them, you realize how much you rely on those things. Hey, we should all strive to be that which God uses, that which God can use. Not just save, not just a possession, but sanctification. Paul did not only set forth Christ and him crucified for salvation. He also pointed out that after salvation, our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption is through Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Colossians 1.27, Paul writes to the church in Colossae. He says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we, see, when we receive Christ as our Savior, we become children of God, new creatures in Christ, vessels for God. But I, I used this illustration here several weeks ago. When you go to the store and you buy yourself dishes, particularly if you get them when they, and they're, they're on the shelf and you pick the ones that you want and you take them home, I, I hope you don't just take them home and drink out of them. Chances are you take them home and do what? You put them in the dishwasher. 
You see, when you bought them, that was redemption. That was salvation. You took them out of the store. They became yours. They're your possession. Now you take them home, but you don't just want to have them. You bought them for a purpose, to use them. So you put them in the dishwasher. You sanctify them. You you cleanse them. You wash them. And then you put them away, and then when you have company over, you bring them out, not just to display them. (laughs) You put them out so they can use them. Hey, what are those things called that you put under a plate? Not a placemat. Chargers. What in the world are chargers for anyways? You know, they look like plates. And we had someone over here not too long ago. And there were chargers on the table. And this individual picked up the charger and started putting his food on the charger. And I thought to myself, why not? Well, individual is instantly rebuked. You don't eat out of a charger. Well, what good is a charger? I mean, what's the point of a charger? It's like having pillows on your bed that if you put your head on, you get yelled at for putting your head on them. Well, what in the heck are those pillows for anyway? God doesn't want show pillows, and God doesn't want chargers. God doesn't want garnishes. I can remember as a kid actually accidentally putting a garnish in my mouth. Why in the world would you put a garnish on a plate with food? The only thing that ought to be on a plate is food, not a garnish. God doesn't want garnishes. He doesn't want chargers. He doesn't want pillows you can't put your heads on. He doesn't want vessels you can't use. God wants to sanctify us so he can use us. But I fear there's too many chargers in church. There's too many pillows sitting in the pews. Oh, no, don't use me. Don't you dare put your head on this pillow, God. Don't you dare use Use this garnish. What, what, what good is that? God's not about things looking good. God's about things looking good so he can use them. That's our sanctification. We receive Christ as Savior. We become children, new creatures in Christ. John 1, verse number 12, I just quoted it to you. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Just like when you were born, the journey doesn't end with birth. There's to be a process of growth that follows and in christianity when we're born again and this is the sad thing about many christian circles is 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 there's no spiritual growth this process is what the bible refers to as sanctification being set apart so christ can use us God gives his power to those who are his children. God conforms us to the image of Christ, that he might live his life through us. The world sees a relationship with God as a weakness or a crutch, but a child of God has the rights and privileges of a son. That's not a weakness, that's a strength. To the world, 
Christ may be foolishness, but to the Christian, he's our help, our hope, our exceeding joy. We cannot live without him, and we certainly cannot grow without him. So number one, be determined. Be determined to preach salvation in your life, with your mouth, the way that you a witness and also be determined to preach the Christ or preach Christ for sanctification. Of course, you can't preach it if you're not living it. God wants us to be sanctified, so be determined. Let's go ahead and have every head bowed and every eye closed. With every head bowed and with every eye closed.